This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of murder, medical malpractice, poisoning, mental health conditions, child abuse, suicide, and sexual harassment that may be disturbing. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. Talk to any therapist, and they'll tell you we're all affected by childhood traumas. Yet, some early experiences leave scars too deep to fully heal. Moving forward, we have a choice. Rise above and become better versions of ourselves, or embrace the darkness and succumb to our vices. Nurse Charles Cullen chose to embrace vice. Charles Cullen was a lonely child surrounded by domestic violence who felt he had no control over his own life and had little luck making friends. As an adult, he sought the control he'd been missing, a goal that led him to become a nurse. Over his 16-year career, Cullen combated his inner pain by compulsively murdering patient after patient. But in the end, it wasn't a hasty mistake or a botched murder attempt that helped law enforcement bring him down. It was his one, and perhaps his only, friend. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every year, thousands of medical students take the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to do no harm. But a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath. They choose to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate these doctors, nurses, and medical professionals. We'll explore the specifics of how medical killers operate not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm here to offer Alistair some medical insight into our first installment of the case of Charles Cullen, a nurse who specialized in fine-tuning IVs that calmed his patients and excited his cravings. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. This is our first episode about Charles Cullen, a nurse who killed patients with lethal drug injections. Since his arrest in 2003, Cullen has said the total number of people he killed is around 40. 
but some experts believe the actual number could be close to 400. This would make him one of the world's most prolific serial killers. Today, we'll look at the early traumas that brought about Cullen's compulsion to kill and the hospital administrative practices that allowed him to move silently for over a decade. Next time, we'll see how Charles Cullen's co-workers connected the dots that led to his capture and confession. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. Anger echoed from the witness stand of the Somerset County Courthouse in Pennsylvania. A woman in a lime green pantsuit was screaming at Charles Cullen, though he sat calmly, eyes closed. Chains shackled his arms and legs, trapping Cullen in the courtroom as person after person unloaded torrents of vitriol. They said he was evil, pathetic, that they'd hoped he'd die a thousand deaths. Charles Cullen wasn't sure how many people he murdered. He estimated around 40, but he never much cared about who he killed. He often didn't even know their names. And in the years since his arrest, Cullen never released a statement, never offered an apology, never gave the families of his victims a chance to look him in the eyes. Until today. The families knew this was their only chance to face the man who killed their loved ones and tell him what they thought. So they did. They screamed. They cried. They read poems and held up photographs. Anything to punish the monster. But the monster didn't care. Rather, he demanded the judge recuse himself. When the judge denied his motion, Cullen himself screamed. His voice echoed off the marble floors of the courtroom. He wouldn't stop, so they muzzled him. They pulled a spit mask over his face, wrapped it in a towel, and literally taped his mouth shut. Still, his screams drowned out the family's words of sorrow until nothing but his voice filled the courtroom. They could make him sit, but they couldn't make him listen. This was his last means of control. Charles Cullen had spent his whole life seeking control, all the way back to his birth in West Orange, New Jersey in 1960. His circumstances weren't ones anyone would choose, and Cullen described his childhood as miserable. He was the product of an unintended pregnancy and the youngest by far of eight siblings. His father died months after his birth, leaving his mother, Florence, to rely on sewing and church charity to get by. His older siblings were in and out of the house, victims of drug addictions and abusive relationships. Young Cullen was often so depressed he would refuse to go to school. He wanted to stay home with his mother, his only source of comfort. Florence Cullen doted on her youngest son, establishing his lifelong impulse to seek comfort, validation, and attention from women. But Florence was a busy single mother and struggled to keep food on the table, so Charles Cullen was often left in the hands of angry men. He was abused by a number of men throughout his childhood, from his brothers who suffered from addiction to his sisters who had abusive partners. 
when one of his sisters finally ran away from her husband, the man turned his abuse toward young Charles Cullen. Cullen allegedly fought back by putting lighter fluid in his vodka. Lighter fluid is an extremely hazardous and widely available household item, so it makes sense that this would be the first poison Charles Cullen would try to use on people. Although there's many different varieties, lighter fluid is a combustible or flammable liquid containing harmful substances called hydrocarbons. If someone drank enough of a hydrocarbon from lighter fluid, there could be some really awful or lethal consequences. Lighter fluid is particularly dangerous because it's normally less oily and viscous, meaning it can spread over a larger surface area when ingested, potentiating its chances of entering the lungs. As this poisonous gastric content gets inhaled, it can lead to pneumonia-like symptoms, long-term lung damage, and even death. However, the rest of the body is also at risk. Large enough doses can also result in severe intestinal, heart, kidney, and skin problems, and we can also see nervous system complications like dizziness, hallucinations, and coma. If someone were to discover they drank lighter fluid, they'd want to seek help immediately by calling the Poison Control Helpline to get connected to a local poison center who will guide them through necessary steps. They should also drink water or milk to dilute the poison unless they have symptoms making it hard to swallow. This kind of toxicity is a scary thought, Alistair, especially because the taste of lighter fluid can usually be masked by strong flavored beverages, like alcohol, for example. As per our story, a person who drinks heavily may not notice someone sneaking it into their glass. It's not hard to imagine why poison would be an attractive way for a child to strike back at an abuser. It involves no direct confrontation. And if his victim were to recover, Cullen could have denied he knew anything about it. In the case of Cullen's brother-in-law, the poisoning was unsuccessful. But it seems this experience led to a lifelong affinity for poisons. And it wasn't just other people he used it on. Charles Cullen attempted suicide at age nine, and though he survived, he became violently ill. He learned, however, that sickness came with certain benefits, namely sympathy and attention. So he played sick often. That's what he was doing in December 1977 on a frigid day in West Orange, New Jersey. 17-year-old Charles Cullen was home when the phone rang. It was the hospital. His mother had been in a car accident. Cullen raced to Mountainside Hospital in nearby Montclair, New Jersey. He questioned every nurse he could find about his mother. To his horror, he learned that his mother was dead, and her body had already been taken from the hospital. Cullen never saw her again. Cullen's mother was in a fatal head-on collision, so it's likely her injuries were significant. Hospitals are required to give immediate family members and significant others the option to see the deceased, so it's strange that they would call Cullen down only to tell him his mother's body was gone. It's also odd that a physician wasn't alerted to Cullen's presence in the hospital because it's standard practice for doctors to privately meet with and provide explanations for the relevant aforementioned parties. Although I've never experienced a scenario where an unaccompanied minor wanted to see their parent's body, 
I imagine and expect that a nurse or physician would accompany them. It's impossible to know exactly why the hospital staff refused to let Cullen see his mother's body, but it's very possible they were simply trying to spare him a traumatic experience. Cullen spiraled. How dare the staff deny him the right to see his own mother? Maybe they were hiding something. Maybe they killed her. To 17-year-old Charles Cullen, the nurses and doctors seemed to play God, exercising complete control over who lived, who died, and even who got to say goodbye. As a young man who grew up with very little control over his own life, this kind of power must have been both frightening and alluring. It's possible this early experience cemented an idea in Cullen's mind. Medical professionals had outsized power and could easily abuse it. Three months after his mother's death, 18-year-old Charles dropped out of school. He enlisted in the Navy, believing it was his only path to freedom. But the moment he finished his basic training, Cullen realized his mistake. Surrounded by men and missing any source of feminine comfort, Cullen was bullied on a near constant basis. He was hazed by even the most novice seamen. They mocked the way he muttered under his breath and called him Charlie Fishbelly due to his pale skin. Unable to sever his contract, Cullen began drinking heavily and refused to follow orders. This earned him demotions in rank and reassignments to menial jobs like cleaning the latrines. By March of 1984, after nearly six years, the Navy had had enough of him. He was given a medical discharge and sent back to New Jersey. Throughout his time in the Navy, Cullen harbored an interest in nursing. Now, at age 24, he decided to make that dream a reality. He enrolled in the Mountainside Hospital School of Nursing in Montclair, New Jersey, the very same hospital where his mother died. But when he returned to that hospital as an adult nursing student, Cullen found he wasn't a powerless teen anymore. In fact, his entrance into nursing school began what may have been the happiest period of his life. The Mountainside Hospital School of Nursing couldn't have been more different from the Navy. For one thing, Cullen was the only male student in a class of 87, and he adored being surrounded by women. For another, Cullen excelled at his coursework. He was well-liked and received a lot of attention. He was elected class president. He stopped drinking, and he even began dating Adrian Taub, the manager at one of his part-time jobs. Cullen showered Adrian with affection and small gifts. She thought it must be too good to be true, a model boyfriend with a bright future who seemed single-mindedly focused on making her happy. The relationship escalated quickly. The couple got engaged just six months after their first date. They were married shortly after Cullen graduated nursing school, and he was quickly hired on his first nursing job at St. Barnabas Medical Center in Livingston, New Jersey. The job paid well, and things were looking up for the Cullens. But Adrian's picturesque life with her new husband was about to take a dark turn. Coming up, for the first time, Charles Cullen finds himself in a position of control. 
Hello, I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. And we're the hosts of the new Spotify original from Parcast, Sinister Societies. You may know us from the very creepy and excellent podcast Red Handed, but now we've teamed up with Parcast for an unprecedented look at history's most nefarious groups. Some preach extreme religious practices, others warn of impending doom, and then there are those whose endgame is far more diabolical. Every Tuesday on Sinister Societies, we take a peek behind the curtain and discover the most ominous organisations the world may or may not have known. Learn how entrepreneurial sects made fortunes off their brand, how charismatic cult leaders caught the eye of celebrities, and why strange orders of the extraterrestrial or collegiate kind attract the most unlikely of followers. Some groups convene in the shadows, others operate in plain sight, All are absolutely sinister. Follow Sinister Societies free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. On June 11th, 1987, 27-year-old Charles Cullen began his first nursing job at St. Barnabas Medical Center in Livingston, New Jersey. His assignment? The burn ward. St. Barnabas was home to the only certified burn unit in the state, so it saw the worst burn cases in the area. Cullen was tasked with cleaning the burn victims, scraping away the dead flesh with antibacterial soap and a brush, a process so painful Nurses nicknamed the area the Scream Ward. Extreme burns are one of the most painful things a human can experience, and they remain one of the leading causes of disability and death worldwide, even today. Burns that require hospitalization are called third and fourth degree burns. Third degree burns penetrate the first two layers of the skin, the epidermis and dermis, and sometimes reach the third innermost layer, the subcutaneous tissue. Fourth-degree burns, on the other hand, penetrate these three layers along with deeper tissue, like muscle. These fourth degrees are so bad, in fact, that the initial injury is actually painless because nerve endings in and around the wound have been completely destroyed. Deep burns like these put the body under an enormous amount of stress, and a major reason is that they cause an overreaction in our protective inflammatory response. This response normally helps the body fight infections, toxins, cancer cells, and many other threats, but when it's so explosive, it can cause intense damage to vital organs. And despite this overcompensated inflammatory onslaught, burns still weaken the immune system and leave the body incredibly vulnerable to possible lethal infections, like pneumonia and sepsis. Perhaps the worst part about burn injuries is the recovery, and this can be an excruciating process. Treatments like skin grafting, wound cleaning, and physical therapy hurt enough, but the psychological pain can also be devastating. Medical professionals have used opiates to treat these patients for many years, along with other medications that have analgesic qualities, like gabapentin, for example, which helps alleviate nerve pain. 
Doctors also may prescribe sedatives and benzos to help someone sleep or to mediate their anxiety. Fortunately, medicine is a dynamic field that is constantly improving, so treatments for burn pain and other burn symptoms become more targeted and effective. However, burn wards will always remain somewhat traumatic settings, both for doctors and patients alike. Despite the trauma, or perhaps because of it, Cullen enjoyed his role in the burn ward. He worked the night shift, which allowed him less oversight and more freedom. He also liked having complete control over his patients, who relied on him to do everything from bathing to relieving themselves. Perhaps Cullen saw himself as the only thing that stood between his patients and death, and he liked that feeling. But while Cullen felt fulfilled at work, his home life began to unravel. Shortly after Cullen started at St. Barnabas, Adrian gave birth to their first daughter, with both a new child and a new marriage, Cullen discovered he didn't know how to handle either. Unlike the orderly, regimented hospital, the rules were not so clear at home. And after feeling alone for so long, he didn't know what was expected of him. He found himself overwhelmed and constantly disappointing his wife. At some point, Cullen turned to the coping mechanism that got him through the Navy. Alcohol. He hid the liquor bottles in his Navy footlocker in the basement. On the rare occasion he was home, he drank alone in the dark, a recluse behind the locked door of the boiler room. At work, his co-workers described him as quiet and extremely private. Though they spent hours every night with him, the other nurses at the hospital hardly knew anything about Charles Cullen. All they did know was that he didn't like personal questions, and that he didn't really bond with patients. Perhaps that's why he preferred the burn ward, where patients screamed more often than they spoke. Regardless, the rising stress in Cullen's life led him to seek other outlets, other ways to feel in control. In June 1988, John W. Yango Sr., a former municipal court judge, was admitted to St. Barnabas Medical Center for a severe allergic reaction known as Stevens-Johnson syndrome. The reaction typically causes a patient's skin to blister and peel, similar to a severe burn. As a result, Yango was sent to the burn ward. Judge Yango was known throughout New Jersey as Maximum John for his reputation for giving extreme sentences. His claims to fame included two unsuccessful runs for Jersey City Mayor in which he campaigned on the promise to bring the electric chair to the city. Judge Yango couldn't have known that the nurse administering his IV, a 28-year-old man with dark hair and downcast eyes, was the very type of person he yearned to strap to the electric chair. Because during Judge Yango's treatment, Cullen injected a lethal amount of lidocaine into Judge Yango's IV bag. Lidocaine is the most commonly dispensed local anesthetic in the medical field, but it's also often used to handle irregular heart rhythms. Specifically, it's used to treat ventricular arrhythmias, which originate in the heart's lower chambers or ventricles. For this, lidocaine is given intravenously, and it works by blocking sodium channels that cause tachycardia. 
Ultimately, the drug is effective here because it reduces the heart's rate of contractions. However, like all other anesthetics, lidocaine can be very dangerous at high doses. This drug family works specifically on the heart's electrical system, and all anesthetics lower arterial and venous pressure and decrease cardiac output. Although it would take an exceptionally large amount to hit toxic blood levels, too much lidocaine could definitely lull someone's ticker into a dangerously slow beat, or even cardiac arrest. To reiterate my previous point, the use of lidocaine is widespread, and this is relevant in that it's present in all hospital crash carts. This is a key detail because it indicates Cullen had easy access to this medication. The overdose sent Judge Yengo into cardiac arrest. Unaware of the lidocaine in his system, hospital staff were powerless to revive him. And Judge Yengo's tragic passing was blamed on complications from his medical condition, not his killer. Over the next few years, Charles Cullen perfected his murder methods. At some point, he transferred from the St. Barnabas's Burns Unit to critical care. There, he dosed patients' IV bags and watched from afar as doctors and other nurses scrambled to save them. Sometimes, it seemed to be about control and power, about knowing that he could decide who lived and died, but other times, it was about attention and acclaim. When Cullen wanted attention, he would rush to the ailing patient with the code team, jump on their bed, and dramatically pump their chest. Cullen's fellow nurses thought it a bit much, but they were grateful when his antics paid off, seemingly saving a patient's life. But even Cullen's reputation as a lifesaver didn't put him above suspicion when another nurse discovered something odd in the hospital storage room. On February 11, 1991, St. Barnabas nurse Pam Allen was retrieving an IV bag from the hospital storage room when she noticed something strange. The port of the IV bag appeared used, but there was no fluid missing. In fact, it appeared to be more filled than usual. The bag was brought to the attention of the hospital's assistant director of security, a former police officer named Thomas Arnold. Arnold sent the IV bag to the pathology lab for testing. When the results came back, they showed Nurse Allen was right to be suspicious. The bag was only supposed to hold heparin and saline, but this bag contained a large amount of insulin. Arnold wasn't sure if it was intentional or just a mistake, but the following week confirmed his worst fears. Three days after Nurse Allen discovered the suspicious IV bag, a patient named Anna Byers was given a heparin IV drip. In less than an hour, she was disoriented and nauseous. A blood lab showed dangerously high insulin levels. Ms. Byers had gone mysteriously hyperglycemic, the medical term for having low blood sugar. As treatment, she was given a glass of orange juice followed by an IV of dextrose or liquid sugar. But both failed to stabilize her. The doctors were helpless as Ms. Byers teetered on the brink of crashing. Ms. Byers was scheduled for heart surgery the next day, and though her blood sugar swings meant she was likely too unstable to undergo the procedure, her physician ordered her heparin drip be removed anyway. 
Shortly after removing the drip, Ms. Byers felt well again. It appeared that the heparin had made her ill. Heparin is an anticoagulant or blood thinner, and it's given to hospital patients intravenously to help prevent blood clots. It's administered during open heart and bypass surgeries and prescribed to bedridden people prior to and after surgery. Hospitalized injured people who are unable to move around may also receive the drug. Heparin IV drips or heparin infusions are also used when patients have existing blood clots to prevent more from forming. As far as side effects go, it's crucial to remember that blood thinners will create excess bleeding because they inhibit the blood's ability to clot. We don't have enough information to know exactly why Ms. Byers was taken off her heparin drip before heart surgery, but I suspect it was because her physician made the connection that something wasn't right with her IV therapy. But she wasn't the only one saved by this realization. That same day, just down the hall from Ms. Byers, a patient named Fred Belf was having an eerily similar experience. After Belf was put on a heparin drip, his blood sugar cratered. Mr. Belf spent the day on a metabolic roller coaster as his nurses scrambled to figure out what was wrong. When they heard about the odd case of Anna Byers, the nurses made the connection between the heparin bags and the mysterious blood sugar crashes. In a last-ditch treatment, Mr. Belf's nurses unhooked his IV bag. He quickly stabilized. Mr. Belf's IV bag tested positive for insulin, but that wasn't the only evidence of foul play. A microscopic analysis of the bag and its port revealed something startling. Three tiny needle pricks. IV bags are often injected with different drugs depending on the needs of the patient. To add medication to a bag, healthcare professionals inject it into a protruding port on the IV line or the small plastic catheter that connects to the bag itself. The injection site on the port is rubber, so needle punctures don't leave marks behind that are visible to the naked eye. Unfortunately, there's no safety features on these ports that let someone know if they've already been injected. There's also never a reason to directly inject into the side of an IV bag. This action wouldn't be accidental, and it could only mean that the bag had been tampered with. With that information, Thomas Arnold, the hospital's assistant director of security, knew what he had to do next. He began investigating using his skills as a former cop. That day, Arnold and another hospital employee dug through patient records, looking for other cases of unexplained hypoglycemia, and he made a disturbing discovery. Arnold found that patients in St. Barnabas' intensive care, critical care, and cardiac unit were crashing with startling regularity. Over the past few months, codes were so frequent that nurses were sometimes forced to leave one struggling patient to attend another. With the help of his boss, Arnold compared the nurses' schedules with the dates and times of the patients who coded. Only three nurses worked every code, and one of them was Charles Cullen. Cullen managed to avoid questioning for some time. Arnold assumed this was unintentional. All the nurses were busy, and Cullen's shifts in particular were rather erratic, often late at night. It took persistence, but Arnold finally got Cullen into a conference room to talk. 
Cullen sat heavily in his chair and stared at the linoleum floor to avoid Arnold's eyes. But unlike the previous nurses Arnold had interviewed, Cullen didn't seem nervous. The other nurses had all been worried for their jobs, their reputations, and the lives of their patients. At the very least, they seemed to care. But Cullen was different. Arnold asked Cullen question after question. Have you seen anything suspicious around the hospital? Do you know why patients on your shifts keep going hypoglycemic? Do you know anything about the insulin spiked IV bags? Cullen either refused to answer or gave vague, non-committal responses. To an ex-cop, Cullen's attitude was a red flag. Working off a hunch, Arnold leaned across the table, narrowing his eyes at Cullen. I know you're putting something in those bags. Cullen didn't flinch. He simply replied, You can't prove anything. Then he stood and walked out of the interview. Arnold was convinced he had his guy, but he had a delicate political landscape to navigate. First off, all his evidence was circumstantial. And second, St. Barnabas was not particularly open to the idea that one of its nurses could be a killer. As a whole, nurses tend to be selfless, caring individuals. Cullen's bosses and co-workers wanted to see the best in him. Cullen might seem a bit weird, but he was generally thought of as a good nurse. He was helpful, thorough, and best of all, always available to cover extra shifts. If Arnold wanted support from the hospital, he would have to prove his case beyond a shadow of a doubt. Thomas Arnold did everything in his power to prove Charles Cullen was the one who spiked the IV bags. He asked the staff to help with timelines and mortality rates, he even installed stop-motion cameras in the storage room, but he still couldn't prove with absolute certainty that Charles Cullen was responsible. Even so, the lengthy investigation took a toll on Cullen. Rumors swirled and he could feel his co-workers' eyes on him, whispering, watching. So, in the midst of Arnold's investigation, Charles Cullen moved on to another job. Just like that, the insulin poisonings stopped. But again, Arnold couldn't prove anything. He had to let the case rest. Though Charles Cullen had successfully wriggled his way out of St. Barnabas, he'd find it much harder to escape distrust inside his own home. Coming up, Cullen's wife Adrian grows rightfully wary. Now, Back to the story. Charles Cullen worked at St. Barnabas Hospital for over five years. So when he left the job in early January 1992, under a cloud of suspicion, his wife Adrian worried he was hiding something from her. But 31-year-old Cullen claimed it was all an internal political issue. Cullen said the nursing administration targeted him due to an upcoming strike. He was one of the few voices against it and told them he would cross the picket line. Cullen claimed that as a result, the hospital turned him into a scapegoat for their IV bag investigation and ousted him from his job. Adrian remained skeptical, but
But when Cullen managed to get hired at nearby Warren Hospital mere weeks after he left St. Barnabas, she convinced herself she was being paranoid. Her husband was highly trained and well-educated. Besides, hospitals checked references for prospective employees. As it turned out, several of the hospitals where Cullen worked claimed their policy when someone called for a reference was to give only the person's job title and dates of employment. This is actually still standard practice today because hospitals are able to access federal and state databases when running checks on new hires. Even back in the 1990s, malpractice and any other medical board-related issues became public record, so hospitals looking for new employees would have easy access to this information. However, the reporting and prevalence of medical malpractice has become greatly amplified over the last 30 years. On top of this, policy surrounding it has shifted in a more stringent and protective direction. There unfortunately wasn't as much oversight three decades ago, so unprofessional doctors slipped through the cracks and avoided suspicion. Given this, it's presumable that today, someone like Cullen would find it much harder to jump from hospital to hospital. The flawed system wasn't only to blame. In the 1990s, the United States was in the midst of a severe nursing shortage. Hospitals were desperate to find qualified nurses, and on paper, Cullen appeared to be an ideal candidate. He had a sterling attendance record, he had no scheduling conflicts, no friends, and was willing and eager to cover shifts on nights, weekends, and holidays. New job in hand, Charles Cullen and his family, which now included two daughters, seemed revitalized. The positive change even bled into his marriage. Cullen's wife, Adrian, allowed herself to be hopeful for the first time in a while. But it was only a week before things turned for the worse. By February 1992, Adrian grew suspicious of her husband's recent behavior. She broke into Cullen's Navy footlocker while he was at work and discovered his hidden liquor stash. That night, she confronted him with the bottles. Cullen insisted his drinking wasn't a problem, but for Adrian, the secret drinking wasn't even the worst part. She was more alarmed by the way Cullen treated her two Yorkshire Terriers. Amid drinking binges, he tormented the dogs. He chained them outside in the dead of winter. He zipped them into bowling bags. Adrian woke at night to their frightened barks from the basement. But after Adrian tried to comfort her husband about his unconscionable behavior, it only got worse. She repeatedly caught Cullen in apparent suicide attempts. However, these developments seemed to push Adrian further away. She filed for divorce in January 1993. Adrian won full custody of their daughters, and Charles, now 33, was forced to move into a basement apartment in central Phillipsburg. To ease his loneliness, he quickly turned his attention elsewhere. A fellow Warren Hospital nurse named Michelle Tomlinson. It started as a friendship. Michelle was on Cullen's shift at Warren Hospital. They had a lot in common. She was also depressed and going through a divorce, so Michelle decided to make an exception to her rule about not dating co-workers. Just as he did with Adrian, Cullen love-bombed Michelle with gifts and attention. Except, it didn't work on her. If anything, 
It made her nervous. Cullen could feel Michelle pull away, so he pushed harder. He told her he loved her. He phoned her house relentlessly. He followed her around the hospital with an engagement ring. And that wasn't all. Just before dawn on the morning of March 23, 1993, Charles Cullen paid Michelle a visit. Her car was in her driveway and her house was dark. Cullen crept across the dew-covered lawn and listened outside the glass kitchen door. He tried the handle, locked. He grabbed a brick and hurled it through the glass. Cullen listened for signs of a reaction, but there was only silence. So he walked inside. The kitchen was dark. The only light was the red flash of the answering machine filled with messages Cullen left earlier that night. He continued into the house and up the stairs. He made his way to the end of the hall, past the room where Michelle's son slept, and opened the door to her bedroom. Charles Cullen stopped in the doorway, taking in the scene. Like his patients, Michelle was completely at his mercy, unaware of his intentions or the raw power he held over her. He watched her chest rise and fall, and pictured the gentle beating of her heart behind her ribs. He could do anything he wanted to her. But he'd proven his point. He left the way he came. Still, Michelle found the brick and connected the dots. The next day, the Palmer County Police Department issued a warrant for his arrest. Cullen drove himself to the police station to turn himself in but not before he swallowed a handful of Xanax and Darvocets. Xanax is a benzodiazepine or a prescription anti-anxiety medication and Darvocet is an opiate that was once used to relieve mild to moderate pain. Darvocet was banned by the FDA in 2010 because it was linked to heart issues and a drug that was frequently abused and overprescribed. Overdosing on Xanax and Darvocet would look like any other benzo-opiate overdose. The combination would create a potentially lethal synergistic sedating effect, and this might very well result in death. Both of these medications depress or slow the central nervous system, and each ultimately strengthens the effect of the other. Someone taking a handful of these drugs together would clearly need some help. Cullen reportedly tried to plan his overdose so he'd collapse at the police station where there was plenty of help around to get him to a hospital. But they released him sooner than expected. He had to change his plans. he just started to feel woozy when he found a payphone. Under the influence, the only number he could think to call was his daughter's babysitters. Cullen found his way to the carrier clinic in Bell Mead, New Jersey. He remained at the clinic for a few weeks before he was transferred to Greystone Psychiatric Hospital in Morristown. There, Cullen underwent several weeks of counseling and therapy. Charles Cullen enjoyed his time at Greystone. There was a grandeur about its crumbling stone walls and massive stepped domes. In therapy, he never had to fight for attention or validation. There were no investigators, no parental responsibilities, no bullies calling him names. Perhaps it was the attention, or perhaps it was the new medication they had him on, but for the first time in a while, Charles Cullen felt at peace. But that peace would be upended 
one scorching summer day in 1993 when he received a phone message. Cullen recognized the number on the slip of paper in his grey stone cubbyhole. It was Warren Hospital. He returned the call, expecting the worst. Everyone at Warren had been aware of his private business, his suicide attempts, his divorce, his arrest after stalking a fellow employee. They were calling him at a place that used to be named the New Jersey State Lunatic Asylum, for goodness sake. Except they weren't calling to terminate him. They needed someone to cover the night shift. Next time on Medical Murders, Charles Cullen continues his killing spree at hospitals across New Jersey and Pennsylvania. He discovers a new method of murder and manages to weasel out of investigation after investigation until he is finally brought down by one of his closest friends. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders, and thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you very much, Alistair. For more information on Charles Cullen, among the many sources we used, we found The Good Nurse, a true story of medicine, madness, and murder by Charles Graber, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Nick Johnson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Danny Messerschmidt, with writing assistance by Sarah Batchelor and Maggie Admire, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Chelsea Wood. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden. You aren't supposed to know about them, unless they want you to. Powerful groups with their own very specific agendas. And if you find yourself on the inside, good luck getting out. Hi, I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. Join us every Tuesday for our new Spotify original from Parcast, Sinister Societies. Whether it's doomsday predictions, deadly greed or world domination, each week, we're exposing the beliefs and actions of the most ominous organisations the world may or may not have known. Follow Sinister Societies free and only on Spotify.